So welcome back to episode 182 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about combining the fields of fire protection, engineering, and combustible dust safety. And we're doing that with a really special guest, Mark Hodap, Senior Fire Protection Engineer with Fire and Risk Alliance based out of Rockville, Maryland. Mark has extensive background in combustible dust and hazard analysis, risk assessment, incident investigation, performance-based design, and fire modeling. We had him on the podcast way back in episode 26, which is uh, just over three years now, I think, talking about the different types of dust hazard analysis. We've had him present on quantitative risk analysis for combustible dust handling operations at our, we had our first global dust safety conference, or maybe it was the one last year. But he is, he is one of my go-to people for very challenging multidisciplinary problems when they come up. So I'm really excited to have him on. Mark, welcome Thank to the you, Dust Chris. Uh, Podcast. Happy to be here and um, you know, always happy to be part of the community and um, appreciate what you do and look forward to our conversation. Awesome. Me too. I mean, this is this is a long time coming, this topic, I think. Definitely. You do. can probably agree. So it, it's kind of interesting because we have this name, fire protection engineers, and we're got engineering. We'll talk about maybe where that comes from. But then we have these, you know, we have general combustible dust safety and all the people that are involved in that and people that do, you know, dust hazard analysis. And for some reason, I don't know what it is, and maybe we can uncover it. There seems to be a pretty big sort of divide in this area. So this this topic came on the back of a dust safety professionals ticket um, that was re- requesting support for a cobalt powder system. They were talking about a lot of different things, but there's some confusions around the requirements for suppression. We had had a conversation with Mark and, and brought him in to that discussion through Dust Safety Professionals and through Fire and Risk Alliance. And he sort of asked an interesting question afterwards about there being a lot of confusion about fire protection systems and related combustible dust. And we're gonna, that's really the kind of topic of the, the discussion today. We're going to talk about what is the field of fire protection? How is it different than our traditional viewpoint that we take when we talk about combustible dust? Then what are some of the challenges that come up that there are these kind of different viewpoints? So it's going to be pretty unstructured. I'm going to let Mark drive on a lot of this because I want to get his opinion as well. I think before we go in, because it has been three years since we had you on, Mark, can you share a bit of your, your background? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, again, welcome everybody. My name's uh, Mark Ladapp. I'm a senior fire protection engineer with Fire and Risk Alliance um, based out of Rockville, Maryland. So I, by by education and training, I guess you could say I am a, a fire protection engineer, kind of went through a, a mechanical engineering undergrad program and, and did get a formal degree in fire protection engineering back in uh, 2009 at this point. Um, and I am a licensed fire protection engineer as well. Um, but in terms of what I've done in industry and kind of what my experience is, I've, I've been practicing for a little over 13 years now. Better part of 10 years of that has been focused on combustible dust and kind of some unique industrial-based fire hazards. So I've done, you know, spent the better part of 10 years with combustible dust. I've also done, had done a lot with performance-based design and, and especially focused on structural fire protection and, and some of the unique hazards associated with the semiconductor industry um, and some of those facilities. I've had a lot of experience with that, but I've also had kind of a broader experience in general fire protection, um, you know, some system design, fire hazard analysis, um, a lot of fire modeling, a lot of fire and smoke modeling over the years. Um, But really, you know, about 10 years ago, I kind of transitioned to combustible dust. So my entry into the field of combustible dust was coming with a fire protection background and kind of learning combustible dust, you know, 
through hands-on training and gathering the experience that way. So I think, you know, that, that way of, of entering into the field of combustible dust, you will, is kind of given me some of the perspective that, that I'm hoping to talk about today. And, you know, I think we'll get into it a little bit in our discussion, but through my experience, there's kind of a couple of different ways that folks get into the field of combustible dust, you know, through fire protection is one through process safety or chemical engineering is another through, you know, um, kind of an EHS background is another I've seen. And I think there's different perspectives that your background gives you and how you look at combustible dust. And, you know, I'm hoping today to kind of share what I see coming from the fire protection side and, 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 you know, what I've seen and how that translates to um, combustible dust. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, let's, let's at least lay the, the, the groundwork for the definition of fire protection engineering is what, what is that as a field, as a practice? What are yeah, we so talking about? It's a good question. And, and um, you know, there's, there's a couple different backgrounds or ways that an engineer might practice fire protection or call themselves a fire protection engineer. A lot of, a lot of individuals will get into fire protection from like a mechanical engineering side and, and they'll, they'll, get some specialized training in fire protection and they'll spend a lot of their time designing like sprinkler systems or very specific fire protection systems. But if you kind of go into like a formal fire protection background and, and kind of what goes into that, especially here, if you, you know, if you were to sit for a a professional licensing exam in the United States, um, kind of really what fire protection entails in that sense is that you, you, Fire protection engineering has a very strong core in, in some of the engineering sciences that are associated with fire dynamics. So you're going to have a, a very strong background in heat transfer, fluid mechanics, structural mechanics. And really, fire protection engineering is an understanding of fire dynamics, uh, the combustion process, heat and smoke generation, um, heat transport and um, um, heat transfer. Uh, the effects of fire and smoke, human behavior and fire, understanding how occupants and, and or, you know, uh, people in a building or, you know, um, um, respond to smoke and how egress works. Uh, there's also a, a pretty strong background in um, understanding the building response to fire. So not just from a structural standpoint, but also how fire and smoke spreads through a space or through a given piece of equipment. Um, and then kind of the last big core or the last two core elements of fire protection, I would say, are um, there's a there's a very heavy reliance on building and fire code um, because a lot of what's done in the fire protection engineering is promulgated through building and fire code. So most fire protection engineers have a pretty strong background in building and fire code consulting. And a lot of a lot of us will do that for a large portion of our career. And then kind of the last piece is the, the fire protection system side. So there's a, a heavy emphasis on water-based fire suppression, sprinkler systems, water spray, water mist, and then other specialty suppression systems, your clean agents, gaseous suppression, dry agents, things like that. Those main topics kind of generally comprise the, the you know, what a fire protection engineer is expected to be competent in. And if you were to sit through for, you know, a professional engineering exam, all of those topics would be covered. You know, there, there are adjacencies to combustible dust, and you do learn a little bit about combustible dust as part of a fire protection engineering program. I mean, the whole idea of combustion and, and explosions and, and the pro, you know, propagation of flame through a diffuse medium, those are all kind of 
fire protection related topics, but in general, most fire protection engineers don't come out of school with an extensive background in combustible dust. So those of us from the fire protection side who become experts in combustible dust have generally had to do a lot of outside learning to get there. Yeah, it's really interesting. So good to have that sort of definition and background for fire protection engineering. I love, and I wrote down some of the people groups you mentioned on how do people get into combustible dust. There is, to my understanding, no explosion protection engineering. There certainly is no combustible dust explosion protection engineering as, exactly. a, as a field. Although there are lots of folks, most of the people we'd have on this podcast would say that that's kind of the field they're in day to day. And it's it's always interesting to see some perspective. And I'll give you a really good example. So, you know, I, I've sat through dozens and dozens and maybe even, I don't know, hundreds, but dozens and dozens of presentations that have shown a dust collector said, you need to prevent the explosion, you got to protect from the explosion and, you know, you got to isolate the explosion. That's a, that's a general explosion safety process for, for a dust collector or any box type of equipment. They talk to a fire protection engineer like, well, what about the sprinkler system? What about it catches fire? How do we promote that fire? And, you know, where does the smoke go? And you only see like one in 20 of those presentations talk about anything to do with that. And it's always a fire protection guy or girl that, that does it. And you're like, oh yeah, right. There's other considerations here. That's that's really interesting. <laughs> um, so it, it, I don't know what that is. If that's a that's a, I think it's a symptom of the challenge that we're talking about today. But have, maybe we'll start there. Do you do you see that as well? As there's this piece that seems to be missing for whatever this field is that we're in. We'll, we'll just call it combustible dust to be short. But I do, and I think you know, I think side. part of it is an artifact of an emerging field, right? I mean, I. I had the pleasure and continue to have the pleasure, but over my career, I've, I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of really good engineers who were kind of the forefathers, you know, if you will, of the fire protection industry. And then, and they'll tell you stories back when they were one of the first classes in a formal fire protection engineering degree program, where they were kind of piecing out what the field really was. And I feel like combustible dust is is a newer emerging discipline or combustible dust safety engineering really is what I think it, it's probably best titled as or, or one way to call it. Um, and it really is, I think, kind of an emerging field. So as part of that, there's some growing pains and kind of understanding what all needs to get brought into it. And, you know, I've definitely seen in my experience heavy influence on the process safety side, which I think is an excellent perspective to look at it. But I think the other one area that I do uh, do con, you know see a lot of gaps in practice is there still seems to be a perception, and I think this is true not only on the consulting side, um, but also on the owner, operator, end user side about we've got fire protection over here, or we've got building code compliance over here, and yeah, we we do our building code stuff and our fire stuff and our fire alarm stuff. That's over here, but we've got this other topic of combustible dust, and, and we're going to treat that separately. And you know, again, I'm speaking in, in generalizations here, and I'll talk more about some of my experiences with certain projects or certain clients where I thought that that was very well integrated, and it you know it was a good learning experience for me. But there still seems to be, by and large, as a generalization, kind of a, a viewpoint that you know. Building, building fire and life safety is over here and combustible dust safety is a different topic altogether. And I think that there's certainly unique aspects to combustible dust. There's, there's more of a focus on the process 
And so in, in that aspect, you know, it, it's certainly a lot of the more traditional process safety way of thinking is very applicable. But in the way that combustible dust is enforced and, and related to building and fire life safety and building and fire codes are a direct link. But I think the other thing that's unique about combustible dust as a hazard or just as the processes associated with it is you don't really have, uh, in most cases where you have an explosion hazard um, or a flash fire hazard or a deflagration hazard, whatever terminology you want to use, you're going to most likely also have an accompanying fire hazard. And, and one can precede the other, right? You could have a fire that, that starts as a fire and escalates into an explosion or vice versa. You could have an explosion that occurs and then you're left with the fire afterwards. Or you could have a process like handling lump coal where you're primarily dealing with a fire hazard in one portion of the process. And then as that's being pulverized or ground or whatnot and handled further downstream, then it becomes more of an explosion concern. But I think that's one thing that's unique about bulk solids handling and combustible dust is that you've got a very close interrelation between fire and explosion hazards. And generally where you have one, you have the other. I'm drawing this big, this big map, this diagram as we, as we talk about these challenges. And I think you, you hit the nail on that. It is multidisciplinary and it's interesting for lots of reasons, but I want to, I want to talk first. Well, I'll make two points here and then, then I'll turn it back over to you. So the points I want to make is, is the provider side is one side and then the, the end user side. So on the provider side, so we have perfect fire protection engineers. There's, you know, there's, there's um, a number of them out there. They all seem to have gone to WPI, <laughs> Worcester Polytechnical Institute. I'm sure there's other groups out there, but so there's, there's those folks. There's process safety, people that kind of came over from that, that skew. Mark mentioned those. There's health and safety, you know, health environment and safety folks have come in. There's explosion protection guys, like ones that are, you know, like, like Bike and Remby and CV Technology and, and Boss and other companies that are that come from a field like if you go look at a presentation from a fike from 30 40 years ago you know they're putting stuff in a box and blowing it up <laughs> and 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 looking at the response of that and not as much on the fire side but those you know explosion protection folks come in with a, another unique set of skills then you have the OEMs the the dust collection guys even the industrial hygienists um, that come in from another viewpoint and then you have your general kind of consultants people that might have been government inspectors that have kind of come in from that background as well. And they all make up some of the service side of, of this community that we have. On the other side, we have the end users, which have needs for fire protection, have needs for explosion protection, but have a bunch of other needs like training, just awareness. And if, you, if you're in process safety, I think you'd call awareness culture. But if you're not in process safety, which combustible dust safety is really almost made a, a point to say we're not the same as oil and gas for some reason. I haven't quite figured out, but so it's not quite culture that we talk about a lot. It's, it's, it's awareness that we talk about, but all these pieces on the end user side, there seems to be a lot more. So if you, if you're just doing fire protection, this is a, a, a gross simplification um, and one that I hope Mark doesn't take a, have offense to or any other fire protection engineers, but you, you know, you design for sprinkler system, you put it in and you probably just like leave that thing. Like maybe there's some training, but I'm just thinking it's it's less than if you put in, you know, an, an active 
explosion protection system that needs to be, you know, maintained and kept up. Um, again, this is a simplification. I'm sure you need to maintain the sprinkler systems as well. But that just shows my lack of background from fire protection engineering. The point I'm trying to make is for combustible dust, where it doesn't happen every day, it's not a gas explosion. So the process safety folks that are in the chemical industries, you know, you know, if a room's full of methane, not to go and light a match, you just, and you know, that young age, like you probably tell a five-year-old, Hey, this, this room is flammable gas in it. And they probably would know just because they're conditioned socially not to do that. But you could tell a 55-year-old, you know, this, this sawdust or cobalt powder is combustible and they're conditioned not to see that as a hazard or, or conditioned not to be hazardous or a risky scenario. All those play into those needs of, of the industry that we serve, which is this sort of mechanical processing industry that generates, produces, or handles combustible dust. And so we have this overlap. We have lots of different inputs coming in. And I think Mark described really well as a sort of field in its infancy. And then we have the needs of the end users, which are very varied. Everything from hand-holding and awareness activities to, to nuts and bolts training, the standard operating procedures, to the actual you know, engineer design of a, a safety system and implementation. And we have all this gray area in the middle, which is where, where Mark works every day, where we kind of work every day as well. What am I missing there? My my breakdown is a big picture I drew, Mark. What's, no, I think what, it's, what's it's, you know, it's kind that? of an interesting breakdown. And, and, you know, I think one thing that I just to kind of expand upon that, I think one thing that I see and um, as, as being a gap and one thing that, that's common is, you know, let's just take a typical processing facility as an example. Just kind of the way the, the way that the current mindset is in, in most cases, you might have a a fire protection engineer or a fire safety consultant or something come into a building and when they when they think fire protection again I'm generalizing but when they think fire protection a lot of times their focus is going to be on the building right you know what is the, what does the egress look like what uh, what hazards do we have in the building we've got a sprinkler system here we've got storage over there we know we need a different storage system there or a different sorry different sprinkler system there um, you know what, what we have for a fire alarm system but a lot of times They'll, they'll, you know, in that process, they'll be like, well, we've got all this equipment over here. We don't really know what that equipment does or what it's handling, but that's equipment. This is the building. So a lot of times, you know, if, if you're looking at something, if, if you are going exclusively with kind of a traditional fire protection engineer, their focus is generally going to be more inward on the building. And I think that's, that's a gap because, you know, if, and I've had this conversation with others is that, you know, We've had this on, on NFPA committee committee calls, discussions like this. When the topic of fire comes up, I, you know, either on discussions like that or in discussions with clients, you know, I'll, I'll hear a lot of times saying, well, fire protection uh, is covered over there, you know, or it's in NFPA uh, 13 or the fire code has it covered. So we're not going to get into that as part of this DHA. We're not going to get into it as part of the scope of this project because, a couple months from now, we're going to call our local fire alarm sprinkler installer and they're going to come handle all the fire protection. And I think like that's, that's maybe one of the misconceptions is, is if you actually, if you look at what your kind of traditional fire protection generally focuses on, it's more of building focused than it is equipment focused. And, and if you go looking at those fire codes, if you could pull up the International Fire Code, for example, aside from a couple of specialty woodworking processes, there was almost nothing in the fire, fire code about where sprinklers need to be to protect equipment. It'll tell you to protect around them, and there's rules in NFPA 13 for obstructions. 
But NFP 13 doesn't tell you where to put sprinklers and equipment. Fire code has very limited guide, guidance. So what I'm seeing in practice is a lot of times this just isn't picked up anywhere. Um, now, if you happen to be insured by somebody like an FM Global or you're, you know, you, you, you have an insurer that is very keen on fire hazards, sometimes it gets picked up through that avenue. But in a lot of cases, this just isn't picked up. So you'll go into a facility and you'll say, well, the building's sprinklered, but we've got all this over here that is equally as severe of a fire hazard or more severe in some cases or less in others, but there's nothing being done to it. And I think like, I think that's, that's kind of the, kind of the point I want to make is that there's still very much, I think a gap between who picks up fire protection, how it gets integrated. Do you handle that as part of a DHA or not? We'll talk about that a little bit, but you know, it always seems like, you know, the other side thinks somebody else is picking it up and a lot of times that gets dropped. So that's kind of one of the points I want to make is that a lot of times, you know, there, there's all sorts of podcasts on dust safety science and elsewhere um, about what a DHA is. And I think there's, there's a lot of really good perspective out there. Um, I mean, a DHA cannot be everything. It can't be all encompassing. It'd be 5,000 pages long, right? You do have to limit the scope of what goes into a DHA. It's not the be all end all. But one thing I do think that is very important is for those out there doing DHAs or, or looking at combustible dust, you're kind of taking the approach of what are the material hazards, what are the equipment hazards, and what are the building hazards. And because you've got that equipment hazard piece picked up as part of the DHA, you may very well be the first or in some cases the only study to look at what's going on inside that equipment. So I think that's why it's really important to be cognizant of this and say, hey, we're going to address fire hazards as part of this because this may be the first time it's being picked up. And, you know, the DHA necessarily doesn't need to solve all, all the problems, but at a minimum, if it flags the hazard and identifies next steps for action, that's already taking a big step. But I, I have seen a lot of DHAs that don't mention the word fire or will specifically exclude it from its scope. And I, that's just where I want to caution that, you know, this is getting missed. And I do think it's, a you know, the, the fields of fire protection and combustible dust safety do in general need to be better integrated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, so if I stood on the soapbox, I'd say, well, 655 says all fire, fire, flash fire and explosion hazards. <laughs> so it's supposed to be in there. But in, in a practical application, the, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but, you know, not everyone has the experience. So, you know, if you're coming from a background of, you know, dust collection or if you're coming from a background of health and safety, maybe you don't have the fire protection experience. If you're coming from fire protection, maybe you don't have the explosion protection experience. So there's, because it's such a diverse field, those can all be challenges. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, Dr. Chris Bloor, spray dryer expert, combustibleist expert in New Zealand, I was at an event one time and somebody asked like, what is the, like a, a practice, someone in the field and then user, actually, you know, what's the simplest thing we can do? We, we have this and this in our system. So, well, have you, do you have sprinklers in your, um, in your ducting for your explosion venting? So they're ducting explosion venting to the, out, to the outdoors. I said, no, we don't, why would we do that? It's like, well, once you vent the explosion, you usually have a bunch of stuff burning in there. And, and I've seen too many times where that actually has burnt down that piece of equipment unnecessarily when the cost actually put a sprinkler system in there would be good. And it's like, nobody had thought of that, or at least in that group that, that was talking there. We've had, you and I've had several conversations on dust collection systems in terms of what should be in there for fire prevention. 
uh, fire protection rather, those things I agree are totally being missed in, in terms of your standard dust hazard analysis and what scope is. And unfortunately, there's nothing saying what a scope should be like, other than the general terms I just used, fire, flash fire, explosion hazards. Mark mentioned material equipment and building. What I would say is that's the most critical point then as a, as a person who's hiring somebody to do a DHA is to hammer out what is that scope what's included, what's your expertise, what's not your expertise, and do we need anybody else to fill those gaps? That all comes to be a conversation piece that's often left off the table in terms of something a DHA provider wants to bring up and something that the, the person that's hiring them knows or doesn't know to ask. I want to give some good news here. So we talked about a lot of challenges, um, and, and maybe you can start with this, any other challenges that you want to bring up here before, but I was really intrigued. You mentioned that you had an, a good discussion about what a, what a well-integrated team looks like um, or some examples so let's let's let you finish off with any other challenges you want to bring up and then let's go to the good side well how's this yeah and i think you know, again again i think the other the other point that's important to bring up i had a, a good friend and, and colleague and engineer who who had this saying and, and i think it's it's important to know he, he used to tell he used to tell his clients he used to say um explosions are a milliseconds problem and and fires are a minute's problem and it's just a simple little saying, but I think it's a good it's a good perspective that that there are two unique hazards. So you know, another thing that I see a lot is is that there's kind of a misconception. I, I can't. I've lost track of the amount of times I've I've had you know been working on a project or had a new client say, "We've got the, uh, an explosion suppression system installed," and you'll say, "Okay, great. What are you doing for fire?" They'll say, "We've got the explosion suppression system installed." And it's just, okay, well, that there, there's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding there that that is specifically designed to manage an explosion hazard, fundamentally not set up to suppress a fire. And, and, you know, so I think there's kind of a misconception about where, where explosion protection and fire protection overlap and, and what systems handle both hazards or what are two separate systems and why the differences are important. And then the other, the other challenge I would just, throw out there to, you know, for folks to think about is that, that the other finding I, I come across a lot is, okay, so we've identified, we've got a fire hazard, let's go install a system, or we'll put some sprinklers here. And I think that, you know, hopefully if, you, if there's a couple things to take away from this conversation, it's that fire protection is a discipline in an engineering field within and of itself. So just like, you know, I think, you know, when I first started doing DHAs, I would, I was, you know, going to a lot of facilities and you'd have a massive, a massive dust collector with this little tiny explosion vent on it. Right. And I'm like, well, we have an explosion vent. Like, yeah, well, it's not properly designed very clearly. It won't work. And what's been neat is over, over just my career, I've starting to see that less and less and less. I've been showing up the facilities and we have explosion protect venting installed and you'll go through the design documentation and, and you'll say, this was properly designed and installed. This is an effective system. And I think that's another thing that's kind of a, a challenge is in fire protection, you're still seeing a lot of, let's just put something in to check the box. And that's the other thing I would say is that, you know, fire protection systems really in any aspect have to be engineered. You know, a, a just a sprinkler does not necessarily mean it will do what it has to do or you know um you know if you just go install a co2 suppression system in a dust collector that may not do what it needs to do 
um, where there may be adverse effects to using that type of system, or there may be material incompatibility issues, or it may not may not control the fire for as long as you th it needs to, and you may have a fire re-erupt and you're back to square one. So I think that's the other that's the other challenge that needs consideration is is just like explosion protection needs to be engineered, so does fire protection. And I, I want to jump in there because I actually said the same. You, I mean, you said it just the way that I probably said already five times in this interview, where it's like it's just a sprinkler. <laughs> I, I, I just I'm vowing uh, publicly on the podcast to never say that again. I'm going to call them fire. I'm going to call everything a fire protection system. <laughs> just demonstrate the importance of the system. Um, similarly, it's not just an explosion, man. It's an engineered exactly system. And just whatever background, if I go back to the list. I'm on page two of my notes. <laughs> but if I go to the back to that list of all the people, like they all, they all know their world and they all really don't know the other worlds necessarily. There are some people that know a lot about multiple things, but you hear that all the time that, you, you know, a, a dust collector expert will, will say, oh, it's, we just put some vent panels on it <laughs> or, you know, it's just a sprinkle. Like it's really depends on what expertise you bring to the table. And it's almost not downplaying all the other, other expertise, but, we just, we got to be more aware about the way that we talk about it, myself included. So I, I'm bound to call them fire protection systems. I just want to interject. Yeah, and just as a that. kind of a funny story to that effect, it, it actually does not have to do with dust specifically, but yeah, I was at a facility recently where everyone knew that there, there needed to be protection on a bunch of things. So we, you know, we showed up and there's, there's sprinklers everywhere. I mean, it looked like they were hanging Christmas lights around the facility, right? You know, we got sprinklers on this, we got sprinklers on that, protect this, protect that, protect this. And, you know, we came in to evaluate it and it's like, okay, in, in, in concept, this is good because you put sprinklers everywhere, but when you looked at it, the way the sprinklers were laid out is there were certain cases where they were too close so that having them located where they were would actually completely defeat the layer of sprinklers located below it. The types of heads that were used were incorrect for the application. And then even getting down to how it was run, when we went back and did a hydraulic analysis on it, there were so many heads in the way they were located. If there ever was a fire, they would be dripping water <laughs> rather than putting enough water down. <laughs> So, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, not to, 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 you know, take, make light of the situation, but I think the point is that it, it really is an engineered safety system. And in order to be, a, it's, it's one thing to have it. It's another thing to have it and be confident that it's effective at achieving its intended goal. It's just like the vent, right? So we, we put a vent on it, <laughs> but you look at the thing you're like, well, the wall's going to blow off that before that vent releases enough pressure. Exactly. <laughs> and you see the results of those. I've seen nice ones, some presentations where, you know, the, the vents are still on the wall, but the wall, the entire wall, the dust collector is, is ripped off. <laughs> okay, well, not enough vent area. <laughs> no, I think, you know, you know, you, I think that that's a good kind of overview and we could spend all day talking about this, but I think those are kind of some of the key points I wanted to get out there for everyone's consideration is just, you know, let me say one more because it's kind of top to mind, top of mind. I want to, I want to get out there as a, as the challenge because it's something we did a lot of last year and something that we have a working group that's actively working towards it now, although we're on, on hiatus at the start of the year um, a bit, but it's response to fires, which is the, the interface between a fire happening and, and potentially leading to an explosion, which is something that we see, I, I'd say like at least half of the, the 
the limb and life causing incidents that we're seeing are our fires actually actively happening. Mark, you'll be very familiar because you're, you're involved with the work that we've been doing with the working group, but somewhere around half don't, you know, don't quote me on that. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little less or a little bit more, but the whole point is there's things that there's activities that people do, or there's a way that systems are designed incorrectly or, or that, that enhance instead of reduce the effect of the fire. So it goes on to, to end up being an explosion. And that's just another challenge too. That, that lies right at the heart of this interface. Cause if you ignore the fire hazards or the warning signs when fires happen, then each time's like another crack at that to, to have a, a knock-on effect end up being explosion. That's just a, a big challenge. It's a whole nother podcast episode. We're trying to write a whole report on doing it. <laughs> um, but that's just the area I want to highlight. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a really good point. And I think that's, that's, you know, another, again, it's, it's a, it's another situation kind of going back to what I said earlier, where. Is that on you guys? Is that fire protection engineers are supposed to tell people how to respond? Whose job is that? <laughs> uh, well, so that's part of, that's part of what, you know, that is part of what fire protection engineers can do. And it's, you know, as with anything, there's specialties within the field, right? So I have colleagues that are far better at that than I am. But yes, as a field, we are, you know, one group that could advise on that type of a, um, you know, fire department response, emergency response planning, that type of thing for sure. Yeah. I only know two or three people I would ask about that. Well, maybe five or six now, but you're, you're on the short list. <laughs> I appreciate it. And actually, you know, the, the, uh, you, you brought up another question or another point that I think is good to make. I think, you know, we've kind of been talking about the concept of fire protection in general and equipment in general, but one, one field that I've seen this really kind of, um, the, the fire protection challenges really kind of take off, if you will, is in the, is dealing with combustible metals and 3d printers in particular. It's just an area that I've I've had to deal with it a lot as of late, largely in due to, uh, you know due to that being a very quickly developing area, and kind of a new technology where where three D printing is becoming more widespread. The you know the different powders that are handled, the different alloys that are handled are are ever changing, and we're going from you know small R and D facilities to large scale production facilities. You know, so that is that is one specific example of kind of an emerging trend within combustible dust where the, you know, importance of fire protection and making sure that that is cohesive with what's being done on combustible dust safety is really important. And, you know, as an example, I'll say that, you know, if you look at NFPA 484, for example, that, you know, there's there's kind of a general requirement to omit sprinkler protection where you've got water reactive metal powders or water reactive metals. And that's a, you know, that is a, you know, in, in general, that's a very good caution. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is that there's a lot of reasons why sprinklers are required in built in a building. For example, there's, it goes back to building code requirements and what's allowable for height and area. You know, the, the there's other features of a building that come into play, the passive fire protection of the building, you know, how the fire resistance of the, the building and the structure is intended to work with the assumption that you've also got sprinklers on top of it. So just simply removing sprinklers from a space because you've got combustible metals may or may not be the right thing to do. And if it is the right thing to do, or if it is what's selected to be done, that's gonna open up a whole lot of questions in most cases from your, your fire department who is trained, most cases, sprinkler, 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 everything. And rightfully so, because that's generally the right answer. So 
you know, that's one, this is one example where, you know, really understanding the hazard and, and how fire protection is big picture should be treated, understanding some of the unique water reactive hazards you have with metal dust. And I think, you know, there's, there's been extremes where we've had fire departments say, you're dealing with titanium powder. It's water reactive, but the code requires you to have an automatic suppression system. So we're going to require that you put in a total flooding argon system in this occupied space to suppress the fire. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to do that, right? I mean, it's an asphyxiation hazard. You can take a relatively small fire, turn it into an explosion that's much more severe than the small fire. And, and uh, you know, that, that was an example where we, where we had to work with the fire department and say, do you understand the dynamics of what a fire involving this powder does? This is a very slow moving fire, very low heat release rate. You know, it, it is where you, you, you overlay the fire dynamics of, of the hazard onto what you're actually trying to protect against. And long story short, that was a case where what was being requested by them was completely inappropriate and actually made the situation worse. And by the flip side, you know, there's certain cases where you say, well, we, we have this small amount of water reactive powder over here, but on this side of the room, we've got, we've got rack storage of, of, you know, parts in, in wood boxes or plastic parts stacked 20 feet high. You're not going to emit sprinkler protection in that space because you've got a couple pounds of powder over here. You've got a rack storage configuration 10 feet away that could take the building down three times over. So like balancing, balancing, you know, what is done for fire protection, big picture is kind of an important aspect that needs to be considered, right? Yep. Couldn't agree more. Um, I, I got the list of challenges here. I'll summarize them. Very multidisciplinary, both on the provider side and on the, the user side for this, this topic of combustible dust fires and explosions. Different hazards. Fire hazards are explicitly different than explosion hazards. Sort of, most of the time, <laughs> except for when they're not. <laughs> but, but they are, you know, they're clearly ones on the order of of minutes and and hours and days, <laughs> and others on the order of milliseconds and and you know, fractions of a second and and, and maybe seconds. So they are distinctly different, but then they are interrelated, and how they're related is is really interesting. Um, we have this response to fire. We have this whole terminology piece: fire protection systems and explosion protection systems and and the like. Um, new and novel technologies, metal. Uh, 3D printing, I think those tie into the the other ones as well. Let's kind of talk about how do, how do we move this forward then? The the prompt I had here was, you know, what expertise should a, a non-fire protection engineer, sorry, what expertise is a non-fire protection engineer missing that could be brought into a, a dust hazard analysis? But I, I think you kind of mentioned that you maybe have some examples of how this might tie together well. So let's, let's kind of work towards some of the solutions. Um, what's missing and then how do we bring it into the into the fold? So I think that's the right transition. I think the kind of the the at a high level, the key is to think about the key is to to kind of get in the mindset that overall fire protection in building and life safety is an integrated concept with combustible dust safety and other other process related hazards too, right? Flammable liquids, flammable gases. I mean they're everything has to work cohesively together. It's you gotta kind of have big picture strategy for any given facility about how you're dealing with these topics. You don't, want to, you don't want to look at any hazard in a box necessarily, right? So I think that's kind of at a high level, that's the challenge is how do you pull this stuff together? And I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple ways that I've seen be successful. And there's a couple different ways that it comes up. So I think 
one of the key things is a lot of a lot of folks now, a lot of uh, consultants and owner owner operators are still spending a lot of effort doing initial DHAs um, and and trying to get their their first cut at a DHA done for an existing facility and an existing process. I know you know there's kind of a we've all heard about the the deadlines and whatnot, but I think the reality is that a very large portion of industry is still working through getting their initial DHAs done. So I think as kind of a first step to help integrate this process is when doing those initial DHAs, you want to make sure that you've got at least sufficient expertise on the DHA team. doesn't necessarily need to be the DHA consultant, but on the team that's weighing in on this, it could be on the owner's side, it could be, you know, the consultant themselves. But I think it's important as part of those initial DHAs to at least identify fire hazards and make sure that that's included in the scope. You know, again, like I mentioned before, DHA can't be everything. It can't solve all the problems on one document, but at a minimum, making sure to include it and start to raise the flags and identify next steps. So, hey, you know, you've got this sprinkler system in the building, but we've noticed that there's nothing going on in the equipment and we've got we've got fire hazards in this equipment that need to be addressed. This needs to be studied. This needs to be studied in more detail, even just by the fact of including it in the scope and flagging it for further study or making it an action item or recommendation gets that out into the open and, and allows that problem to be solved. Right. So I think, you know, at a minimum for the initial DHAs, I've seen that be effective. Make sure that that is included in the scope and make sure you start the conversation about it. Existing facilities are always more challenging because whatever infrastructure is there is there. And there's just certain constraints that, that may limit what you can do practically to an existing facility, um, but you know at least get it out there. I think one of the concepts that that is, that I've seen be absolutely the most effective. I highly advocate for it. And I first got to practice this about ten years ago for for a company who who had some really good leadership and background in fire protection and process safety both. But they did a really good job of of you know, kind of integrating everything. And I had the opportunity to be on that, on that project team. Um, I think one of the things that's really important is, you know, there's so much focus on doing these initial DHAs, but I think there's really kind of three types of, of DHAs or three processes, right? There's kind of the initial step, the initial DHA or the initial study. What do we have? And then there's kind of the remediation phase um, dealing with, you know, addressing those items or, equally important on new projects, right? And in part of the remediation or on new projects, I think it's very important at that stage to bring in the right parties. So if you're, especially on a new project, you know, I, that's where I would advise you integrate combustible dust safety with fire protection, building and life safety, you know, um, and you kind of make sure that you've got everyone with that background at the table. So, kind of using a new project as an example, um, and this is, you know, experience I've had with, with clients is if you, if you do that on a new project, so let's say we're going to do a project, project DHA or, or, you know, a new project, we're going to make sure that our scope includes integration with the code, building and fire code. We're going to make sure our, our scope includes integration with fire protection, fire alarm. We're going to make sure it addresses all the process safety. We're going to make sure it addresses you know, all the aspects of combustible dust safety and EHS. But if you pull kind of that team together and you make sure that you're addressing it holistically at that time, that's where you can guarantee to get it right the first time. So, 
you know, you're, you're engineering things, you're doing the upfront engineering or the upfront front assessment to make sure that when you are done with your project, you've got it all accounted for. You know, and a really good, a really good practical example of this is kind of a missed opportunity. I was working on a project lately where we were brought in kind of late in the game and this particular facility had probably just gone through and installed 10 or 15 dust collectors, a handful of silos and dryers. And the, the, the process continuity was very, very critical. You know, any downtime was a major issue. Um, there was a little bit of a life safety concern, but most of the issues were associated with, you know, business continuity and business interruption. Unfortunately, at the time we were brought in, any opportunity for laying um, infrastructure for site fire water, uh, infrastructure for fire alarm, infra you know, uh, building construction type and all of that had already been laid down and was kind of too late to the game. So that was a case where there's a lot of findings and had we been involved six months earlier, we could have planned for all of that and at a fraction of the cost made sure everything is properly protected. So I can say where I've had the most success is when you get involved early enough and you've got the right background, you, you can make sure everything's integrated. So we're going to be installing this process handling equipment. We're going to do a project DHA on it. We know we've got these explosion hazards. We know we've got these fire hazards. We're going to be interfacing with what's going on in the building. We know the building has all of, of these fire hazards and these, these building code requirements. So we're going to design our fire water infrastructure to protect the building. And we're going to put our, our dry pipe risers outside on along this wall of the building so we can hit all our dust collectors and whatever else equipment is located outside. We're going to make sure we've got the right fire alarm infrastructure to tie all our explosion protection panels together. We're going to do all this analysis, do all the engineering behind it. We're going to put it together into a design package that's going to get submitted to the authorities having jurisdiction, the building code or the building department and the fire department. And we're going to present it as a complete solution. Engineering gets done right, drawings get approved, then we go build. And I think like if you have that type of an arrangement, which is very plausible if you plan for it ahead of time, then you're making sure that all these concepts are integrated. And it could involve, you know, it's, it's going to probably involve some multidisciplinary coordination. But when I've had the ability to work on project teams like that, that is definitely where there's been the most success. And when you look at the, the, the outcome, not only is it safe and code compliant, but if you look at the, you know, the amount of, of resources or the money that, that it took to do the upfront engineering versus what you were left at as um, a finished product, the value is there. I mean, you spent the money on the engineering, but then you have a sustainable, well-designed, safe system for the life of the process. Kind of in a nutshell, that's, that's what I would say the successful approach is. Yeah, I like it a lot. Start early. Team approach, really focus on sort of an integrated approach between the different practices, identify the hazards. Yeah, I think it's really that combined approach, starting early and bringing the right people in. And if you're kind of stuck like, okay, well, you we don't know who the right person is for this area, that's the point of dust safety professionals because we get that question all the time. I don't know who the right person to reach out is for such and such activity. Um, you can go there, put the information in, we'll connect you with the right person locally in your area, whether or not you're in Maryland where Mark is or if you're in Malaysia or in uh, Africa or Europe. Um, we've had calls from all those places just in the last, actually haven't, one, haven't, haven't had one from Maryland the last few weeks, but these last few weeks we've had uh, calls from all those places through DSP. So that's the point. If you're stuck, like I don't know the next step, I don't know who the right person is to bring into the team. We, we have a network of 180 subject matter experts now in, in that system. Just 
shoot us a message and we'll, we'll get you squared away. And, and um, you know, as a real quick note, you know, I don't, what I just described, I mean, there's really nothing novel about a, a, about a, you know, a, a integrated team approach that gets done a lot in a lot of different aspects. I think what, what is, you know, the novel about it or what's important about it is integrating the combustible dust into that process and making sure what's going on with the dust safety is being coordinated with the broader building fire and life safety designs, right? That's the kind of the missing piece. Yeah, I put two bullet points that I skipped over because I wrote them too messy to know what they say, but I remember now <laughs> it was uh, identify which, like uh, actually write down what the scope is of that team and what hazards we're identifying, and then identify any missing expertise, which ties into what you're saying. Okay, are we only focusing, you know, are we, are we heavy on explosion protection with this group? Okay, we might need to bring in a, a fire protection person. Are we heavy with occupational health and safety then, or vice versa? Are we missing occupational health and safety? Are we bu- missing building and life safety? Do sort of a gap analysis at the start, which is probably not novel or new either, but maybe good practice to look at and important practice when you're talking about these type of systems that are pretty complex. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, I mean, that that sounds like a really good coverage on what is a pretty broad topic, a uh, pretty big ask for Mark to come on, just chat through the stuff, but it really is the the, the combination of uh, discussions that, that we've had over the last couple of years with with Mark on this specifically and with others on on integration of process safety concepts and just across the board, how do we make the community function better, be more effective in preventing explosions, be more efficient in keeping costs down for safety projects? Um, and this is just another piece of the puzzle to try to figure that out. Any other comments, Mark? Anything you want to leave the audience off on today around this topic? No, I think it's just um, kind of as in closing, I think, you know, it's it's combustible dust we especially with what you know dust safety science has done you know i think it's it's definitely moving in the right direction as a field i mean i've seen positive change absolutely demonstrative positive change just even over the 10 years i've been doing it um so i think there's a lot of a lot to be proud of by everyone who's practicing and all the professionals and all the owners operators who are really diving in and and tackling this this topic um, I think this is just one er- one other observation based on experience as an area for improvement. And, you know, I'm sure everyone's going to get a hold of this and, and um, we'll be talking about this five, 10 years from now, and it'll be common practice that fire protection and explosion safety and dust safety are an integrated concept. I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, well, that's awesome, Mark. I do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we will be getting you on the podcast sooner rather than later again, I'm sure. Uh, and I appreciate the work that you do down there. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity and um, I'm looking forward to what's next on the agenda here. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. So you must myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Mark Hodap, Senior Fire Protection Engineer with Fire and Risk Alliance based out of Rockville, Maryland. We talk about this topic of combining or, or how to combine the fields of fire protection and combustible dust safety. And we covered a we covered a lot of ground in this interview. It's actually been quite fun just to talk through and sort of rift on these different concepts and ideas. We talked about just what is fire protection engineering, try to give that some sort of definition. Covers things like understanding fire dynamics, smoke dynamics, building and fire code consulting, fire protection systems, which I've I vowed to say more often on the podcast and in my in my personal discussions. Sort of encompassing all of these aspects of protecting from a fire, but also building on life safety. We talked about some of the challenges that come up here and sort of broke them into two groups. So we have the providers of combustible dust safety to the, the global community, 
And we have the you know owners and operators and users, um, workers at these sites. For the providers, the challenge, and both challenges are multidisciplinary, but for the providers, we have folks coming in from many different backgrounds into this emerging field, I think is what Mark kind of called it. So we do have fire protection engineers. We have process safety professionals. We have, you know, explosion protection design folks, equipment manufacturers, dust collection manufacturers, or dryers or mixers or, you know, all kinds of different equipment that's using, that's used in bulk processing. We have just the consultants and people that are coming in from a knowledge-based background, could be, um, you know, government inspectors, could be lots of different folks on that side, and then health environment and safety as well. All sort of on the provider side, coming and bringing their own backgrounds, knowledge, and viewpoints into this uh, discussion of combustible dust. On the other side, then we have you know users that have quite a range of of needs. Mark broke it down really nice. You have the building, you have the equipment, um, and I'd add you have the people. So you need to really protect all three of those things, and you need to make sure that whatever safety system, and when I say system, I mean in its broadest sense, incorporates those. So the educational components to the workers. The, the culture, if we want to talk about some of the process safety concepts, the training, the, you know, bring contractors on site. There's all the, the people challenges that we have every day, uh, making sure the processes are actually efficient and effective so that people don't go around them to do something more effective, designing things safe so that they, they can't be done unsafe. And there's lots of things come in there, the equipment and the building. So sure, we can have the building protected, but is the equipment protected? Vice versa, if you're just going in there and putting in vents, not looking at how is the building going to interact, well, was a great example that Mark brought up was the, you know, it's, oh, there's metal. We better tear out all these sprinklers. <laughs> well, they're, they're in there for a reason. <laughs> we probably should ask why and what are we losing when we do that? So those are some of the kind of things that come up. And we, we talked a lot more about, and that was all under this category of multidisciplinary. We talked about just the hazards themselves. They are different. Fire hazards take longer to grow and develop. They also have longer response times, uh, activation times where, you know, explosion can be very quick, very fast. So they're distinctly different, but then they're also interrelated in many different ways. A fire can cause an explosion, explosion can cause a fire, vice versa. Response to fires is something that we've seen as a challenge a lot in the incident reporting. Some challenges around terminology and just not, you know, don't simplify the things that are just not in your background. Don't say it's just a sprinkler system. You know, say it's a fire protection system. Don't say it's just an explosion vent. It's an explosion protection system because, at the end of the day, they're all engineered systems. And if they're not engineered correctly, they won't work right. The sprinklers are all junk and not, Mark brought a bunch of ways that might fail, but they're not going to work. Same as you put a vent on that's way too small, it's not going to work. And then, you know, novel industries that come into play, things like 3D printing, nanomaterials, um, hybrid systems, pharmaceutical. These are all areas where we're getting um, novel and new kind of solutions coming out. And they may have both fire and explosion protection applications. Closing off, we did share a little bit, okay, well, that paints a pretty grim picture. How do we think we're going to improve this moving forward? And, and Mark was kind enough to say that he really appreciates the work we're doing at Dust Safety Science, the podcast, the, the conferences. That keeps the conversation going. And if we play any small part in bringing people together, keeping that conversation uh, rolling so that we don't forget some of the things we've learned over time, more importantly, so that we start to interact and continue to interact more, then, then that's really great. Mark gave a really great example about having a team approach to doing this early in the process, you know, bringing on the, the prerequisite knowledge that's needed, looking at the different fields. And, and I really like this idea of just at the start, identify what the scope of your, if it's just a DHA that you're doing, again, I probably shouldn't say just a DHA. If it is a DHA you're doing, identify the scope with the person you're working with at the very start. What equipment's not being included? What building and life safety systems is not being included? 
are you tackling training and management systems? You want to really hammer out that scope. And on the flip side, you know, what expertise are you missing to make that happen at the end of the day? I think that's a, a great place to leave this episode off on and really a call to the, the industry, to the community to see how can we improve this move forward. If you have any opinions, definitely send them through to me, Chris at DustSafetyScience.com. Well, the show notes for this episode at DustSafetyScience.com slash 182. I'm also a way to contact Mark if you want to connect with him and, and learn any more about the work that he does. We'll have that in the show notes as well. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe, productive week ahead. I appreciate everything you do in industries handling combustible dust and making them safer with the work that you do every day. Thank you.